Men seldom make passes at girls who wear glasses. It's a quip attributed to writer, poet, and critic Dorothy Parker. She also once said, quote, A silver cord ties me tight to my city, her city being New York City. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. Dorothy Parker lived an extraordinary life in the Big Apple, but what happened after she died is also extraordinary. It's a story that was literally put to rest this summer amidst the coronavirus pandemic. More than 53 years after her death, Dorothy Parker's ashes were interred at Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. It's a tale only my guests could tell well. Kevin C. Patrick is the head of the Dorothy Parker Society. He's also a professional tour guide and author. He, along with the New Yorker writer, Lori Gwen Shapiro, brought Parker's cremains to the Bronx from Baltimore, where they had been interred at NAACP headquarters. It's quite the story. Kevin, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me back on, George. Lori, hello to you. It's nice to make your... Uh acquaintance on this on this call a lot of people have their here's what i did during the covid19 pandemic story right but this one may very well take the cake Lori, you do a phenomenal job outlining it all in your new yorker piece titled the improbable journey of dorothy parker's ashes first of all how did you two connect on this well actually it's it has a a, a really good bookend quality, which I didn't write in, but I actually um, am a Dorothy Parker fan. I'm not a fanatic, as some people are, but I grew up uh, with a mother who loved Dorothy Parker, so among the first things I read was Dorothy Parker, and I joined a, a Facebook group called the Dorothy Parker Society. It didn't seem to have any dues, and I just was following it, and there was a, um, uh, I guess, a a walking tour being offered on Dorothy Parker's birthday, which is August 22nd, which I know very well now. <laughs> and I went on this tour and I met Kevin uh, C. Fitzpatrick. He likes his C, I've learned. I've, As I was saying to you uh, just before, we've spent a lot of time over the last year, as listeners will understand soon. So I know he likes his C. <laughs> Kevin, would you consider yourself a Dorothy Parker fanatic? I think so. Um... In the 90s, a friend gave me Marion Mead's biography um, about Parker, and that really launched my website, which became DorothyParker.com in 1998. And then the following year in 1999, my friends and I started the Dorothy Parker Society with a walking tour. And since then, you know, we've had thousands of people, you know, visit the site and see me and it's led to books and um, you know different activities all, all related to Parker and the Algonquin Roundtable. So for those not familiar with Dorothy Parker, and I'm sure there are people listening right now who might not be too familiar with Dorothy Parker, who, Kevin, is, was Dorothy Parker? Sure. So like Lori said, she was born August 22nd, 1893 in Long Branch, New Jersey, because her, that was her family's summer vacation cottage. She liked to say it was the only time she was ever early for anything because she, she wasn't due to be born until October. Um, but she also said she got home right before uh, Labor Day so she could be considered a, a true New Yorker. Um, she grew up on the Upper West Side. Uh, she was a writer, a poet. Uh, she was the first female uh, critic on Broadway. But she also believed in social justice and civil rights at a very young age. And she was writing against racial intolerance and civil rights in the 1920s which really colored a lot of her writing. She was on a 
blacklist. J. Edgar Hoover had G-men following her around. And, you know, that was while she was working in Hollywood. And, you know, she wrote, you know, a lot of, you know, uh, comedies in the 1930s and 40s. Um, but then what leads up to the big story today is in 1965, when she created her will, she left her estate to Dr. King, uh, a man she never met, Martin Luther King, MLK, um, with the caveat that after his death, it would pass to the NAACP. And to this day, the NAACP um, gets the, the revenue from her rights and royalties from her estate. So remarkable. Lori, talk to me more about that, if you will, and how much did you know about that prior to all of this? Well, I, I didn't know all of this. Um, I, I did uh, participate um, in a celebration uh, at the Algonquin in June uh, as someone who I did a, a, a reading in celebration of 100 years. And I was able to meet um, Dorothy Parker's three grandnieces who were at uh, one of the celebrations and they were lovely. And we really, actually we were hitting, we were, they were from central New York and we were talking a lot about our love of Wegmans supermarket because I went to Syracuse University. <laughs> I never thought that that would come back to help my cause of being a journalist um, on this story, but you never know. And I, I had a good rapport with them. And I think that kind of impressed Kevin, who was at that event, and he, I am uh, someone who likes to walk. I mean, that's how I met Kevin to begin with. And I, during the pandemic, I take walks as a way of relaxing. And I, I write history, I try to recover history, but I, I'm always listening to people, almost like an old beat reporter. And Kevin had uh, done a guidebook. He's also a tour guide and a guidebook guy. And he had done a new book about the Bronx. And he said, why don't you walk with me in the Bronx? And I said, sure, I could do this, seven miles. And I was like, no worries, I'm a pro walker. And halfway through the Bronx, he says, I gotta tell you something, why I called you out here. I've got a secret, but loose lips sink ships. You've gotta keep this quiet. <laughs> We're gonna get Dorothy Parker out of Baltimore which we're going to have to go back for reader for listeners on why she's in Baltimore. Yes. And uh, we're going to bring her back to New York and you're going to be doing this with me. And the only place that this story should be is in the New Yorker because Dorothy Parker is synonymous with New Yorker. Now I've, I'm not a staff writer, but I have done some freelance for them and I, just thought, okay, I'll pitch. And you gotta know that the New Yorker took the story pretty right away and they've kept quiet for over a year, which is great. So it's really been uh, a stealth operation since July, since I took that walk in the Bronx with Kevin. But maybe he could explain why she is in Baltimore of all places. Yeah, Kevin, give us the backstory of how Dorothy Parker's ashes wound up in Baltimore. Well, George, this is something for your listeners to know is Think carefully when you create your will about who your executor is, because that's very important. Because what Dorothy Parker did is her executrix was Lillian Hellman, who, as most people have found out, is she wasn't really the nicest person in the world. And once Lillian Hellman found out that she wasn't She's getting it. Right, right, right. I think you need to, for anyone who doesn't know, she was, she's a, a acclaimed playwright as well. And a supposed friend of Dorothy. <laughs> supposed friend of Dorothy. Friend of me is like, I think the 2020 word, right? Friend of me. <laughs> there we go. She was 
she was Parker's friend and they, they palled around for more than 20 years. But what happened is Dorothy Parker was cremated in June 1967 in Hartsdale and Hellman never collected the cremains, never did anything with them. And so um, after several years in the early 1970s, uh, Ferncliff Crematorium said, you know, what are we doing with these? So they shipped them to her, her the address of her, of her attorney uh, in lower Manhattan. And the partner was Paul O'Dwyer. So Paul O'Dwyer kept them in his filing cabinet for many, many years. And it wasn't until 1988 when the Parker biography came out that he let it be known that I've had these remains in my filing cabinet all these years. So he called a press event at the Algonquin Hotel to figure out what to do with these, with this urn. But actually, he, before he called the press event, he, I mean, a lot of listeners will remember the gossip columnist, Liz Smith. And she had a lot of power, actually, because she was, she was in New York. You know, we all, we're, we're all gossips in New York, but she had a national syndicated column. And she put out the story of, of what was going on. And the story was a big story in 1988. We've forgotten that now in 2020. So back to the party in the Algonquin. So when the NAACP, which is, you know, the leading civil rights organization in the country, if not the world, hears about this, they step in. And all these other crazy ideas of, you know, dropping her out of an airplane and mixing her into a painting at the Algonquin, they go out the window. Wait, I just want to stop you for a second because I had a list of the ideas that people came up with and I had to get through New Yorker fact-checking, which is legendary. <laughs> and they're saying, there is no way that somebody was suggesting that we're going to mix her into paint or sniff her, roll her around and, and pass her out like cocaine. And I, I, I'm a great uh, research uh, geek and I, I pulled out the, <laughs> the references and they said, okay. You made it through this fact-checking. So <laughs> it was a crazy party, right, Kevin? Yes. Disrespectful, actually, as well. So what happened is Dr. Benjamin Hooks, who was the executive director, he stepped in and had them brought to their new headquarters in Baltimore. The NAACP had moved from New York to Baltimore into a suburban campus. And they created a very nice memorial garden right outside their headquarters called the um, Dorothy Parker Memorial Gardens, right? Is that what yes. they call it? And so she was um, uh, buried there under many, many feet of concrete, which we watched get removed in August of this year. And uh, so for thir almost 32 years, that's where uh, she resided. They put a very nice plaque up in place. Um, it was, you know, landscaped very nicely. Um, but in the back of everyone's mind was, why is Dorothy Parker in Baltimore? Well, also, I mean, it was in the back of everyone's mind, but I think people were a little bit unnerved back in 88 as well that she would actually leave. I mean, when you think of Dorothy Parker, you think of New York. But there was one of the things, one of the challenges for me to tell the story was that, you know, the NAACP, as Kevin is alluding to, did a wonderful thing by you know, not letting her be dropped out of an airplane. They, they, were, they were taking care of her in a way, but unfortunately it was in their headquarters and the Memorial Gardens, which were nice when they were first designed, 
they were um, not far from a parking lot and not in downtown Baltimore, in suburban Baltimore. People forgot about the fact that she was there. It's very difficult to get there. Um, and on top of it, you know, they do incredible things, but they're not in the business of pre preserving cremains. And by the time that Kevin and I uh, visited, they had actually also been ready to move. But one thing I wanted to point out is that Kevin has been on this well before my involvement because they were threatening to move back in 2006. And that's when you started your actions, right? That's 14 years ago, if you think about yeah, that. Yeah, Kevin, I wanted to ask you the question, when did you have this idea? You know what? We're going to move Dorothy Parker's remains somewhere else. We're going to get her out of Baltimore. Good question, George. Well, after I started DorothyParker.com, um, her family reached out to me. Dorothy Parker didn't have any children, but she had a, a beloved older sister who had a daughter. And so these are her, her children, her, so her grandnieces and nephews. So I was in touch with them starting in 99, 2000. In 2006 is when Barack Obama talked about, uh, when he was running for president, is when the NAACP started making um, waves, they might leave Baltimore and move to DC. And so I contacted uh, them, as well as the family, as well as Woodlawn Cemetery to find out about a potential move to the Bronx, um, to the plot where her parents are and her maternal grandparents are. And so that all was happening in 2006, 2007, when um, I got the research done by Woodlawn, they were wonderful. The family signed off on it. And then NAACP wrote to me and said, when the time is right, you know, we won't forget Dorothy Parker, okay? But then what happened is nothing happened for the next 12 years until last year when the, uh, when the family restarted the, uh, the letter writing to, to get something going because they were going to move. Um, and so that's why um, it took so many years. Also, I think something that is, I think that I don't even think I, I mean, I kind of touched upon this article, but it's, you know, there's always spaces at a premium, but there are also the, the three nieces who are lovely, uh, uh, were also felt that they're, they wanted to protect Dorothy Parker's legacy as well. And they were getting older and they yes. didn't want to burden their, their children with this. They, yes. they wanted to get their business done as well. How, I mean, they're, they're not, they like prefer the word mature. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they, what they were saying, George, is they would like her to be in a cemetery, a forever place. And with, you know, the, who she's with is their great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents. Um, it's a six-person plot that her father bought in 1899 uh, or 98. And so, you know, because of the research Woodlawn accomplished and Susan Olson, who I know is a friend of your show, um, she's the one that figured out that, hey, Dorothy Parker has the rights to this, there's space for her. She signed an affidavit when she was alive that she wanted to go to Woodlawn. So Woodlawn Cemetery did all the, the legwork to figure out that yes, she can, she has a legal right to, the, to go there, there's nothing to prevent it. You know, we just had to go to Baltimore to get her out and that was, that was the caper. <laughs> I think we were pretty good in terms of keeping this story quiet. So if you remember from the beginning of this conversation, uh, I came aboard uh, in July of uh, 2019. Kevin's been working on this many more years than I have. Um, 
But we got then the green light from the New Yorker, which was, you know, that's what they said, whenever the story happens, we thought originally it was going to be very dramatic. It was going to happen around October, around Halloween. We thought, well, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> but then there were delays. There's a lot of red tape. We get to January. They're, they move uh, to a temporary home in downtown Baltimore. They're ready to go to Washington. But we're getting a little anxious because there's no one in the old headquarters, but no one really knows about the story yet. And then there's local reporters that are starting to figure out, wait a second, isn't Dorothy Parker in the headquarters? And so we, we started to try to keep our sources quiet. There were articles along the lines of what's gonna happen to Dorothy Parker, but we knew all along what was gonna happen to Dorothy Parker. And we had a lot of people involved that had to be quiet and a lot of New Yorkers involved, which is not something easy for New Yorkers to do. <laughs> But, you know, people on staff at The New Yorker, Kevin, myself, I mean, I'm from the Lower East Side. We're not known for keeping secrets, but um, so that's really where it started to happen. But then as Kevin, you know what happened next in, in March, right? What was the big development? Well, I, I, I will cut to the chase is, you know, we finally got approval in January. Um, we were going to go in March, um, but then when the pandemic struck, that meant that nobody could go anywhere. And so we just waited. Um, and then in August, decided to restart the conversation um, when it was safe enough to travel from New York to Maryland via, via Amtrak. Unfortunately, the family couldn't travel because of the travel restrictions and it wasn't safe. Um, so that's why it was just myself that went down as a family representative to retrieve the urn. And I went, I went down and you know, journalists are also under restrictions on what they can, can or cannot do. And we had to promise to sit on different, different uh, aisles of the train. And I mean, it was like some crazy restrictions as well. But I was given the green light finally to go down to Baltimore with, with Kevin. On. So we, we met in Penn Station and headed down there. Yeah, so describe the experience for us, Kevin, of going to Baltimore, exhuming... Dorothy Parker, and bringing her back on an Amtrak to New York City to get her to the Bronx? Well, George, I've been thinking about it for many years, of course, and I thought it was going to be happening, you know, quite a while. So um, I actually brought a box with me. I made a box out of pine in my basement to put the urn in so that I wouldn't be carrying her back in a fresh direct bag. So <laughs> it was that level of detail that I was, I was working at. But it was a very surreal, um, like out of body experience to be going down to Baltimore to do this. Um, because I have been, you know, talking about Parker, I've written books about her, given walking tours about her for more than 20 years. So for it to finally be happening to go to her memorial garden and watch this crew of three men with a pick and shovel and jackhammer spent two and a half hours removing her out of the ground, they opened up this concrete cylinder uh, with a hammer and there's the urn. I mean, it had turned black with age. It's, uh, it was in 100% intact condition. They knocked the concrete off of it and put it right into the box, put the top on it. And we had a very nice ceremony that the NAACP led 
Um, but we really talked about her, you know, leaving Baltimore to go back to her hometown. So it's a homecoming story. And also she, I don't know if, mm-hmm. if listeners know that she, she was half Jewish uh, and she did not, her father was Jewish. Um, I, I come from the school that if one of your parents, however you want to identify is what you are. I mean, I, I don't know how rabbinical it is, but um, she, but we did have the rap, the one person that was uh, there at the, in 1988, when there was a ceremony to bury her, that was there again, was the rabbi uh, that had represented uh, her Jewish heritage. And he did a Kaddish which was really quite moving. But, you know, she was also, went to Catholic school. I mean, there was also, and then the NAACP was talking about her legacy as a civil rights activist. But we also had thought this was gonna take 15 minutes to get uh, her out of ground. And it took about three hours. And we had a 2.45 train to catch. And Kevin is looking at me thinking, is, is Mrs. Parker gonna make her 2.45 train? I don't know what we're gonna do. <laughs> um, but we, we were watching the clock at the same time because we had a, a date with her to get her on the train. You gave Dorothy Parker her own seat, right, Kevin? Well. First, she got a ride in an Uber. So we Ubered over to the train station. She got a little tour of Baltimore uh, one more time. And then she had her own seat on the train out of town. And as soon as we got out of Maryland, I brought along a bottle of Dorothy Parker gin from Brooklyn, uh, a lime, a knife, bottle of tonic, and so we could have gin and tonics uh, to celebrate Mrs. Parker's homecoming to, to New York. We were opposite aisles, but we toasted. <laughs> I will say that the Amtrak uh, train was um, pretty empty, but, you know, so it was, I felt pretty safe. We had our masks on and we took our masks on off briefly to have a sip, but we inadvertently got into the quiet car on the way back. We didn't expect, we didn't know, what, we wanted to talk about what had just happened, but somebody, there was like one person with the computer that was going, shh. And so we had to kind of, you know, like send text notes to each other from across the aisle with our enthusiasm and what we had uh, just achieved. And I should say what Kevin had just achieved, because this is really uh, working with the nieces was really something he'd been working on for 14 years. And I was just the journalist following along. What was the reinterment like at Woodlawn? Um, That was a very nice thing. And because of COVID rules, it was private and was only, you know, who the family wanted to be there. So um, there was only 10 people. Um, the speakers were myself, Susan Olson, and Hazel Dukes um, from the NAAC, who was a past president, who's wonderful, a very, very genuine, warm, you know, longtime leader in civil rights and social justice in, in our area. 88 years old. So she was really doing an honor by coming out during a pandemic, but she, thought it was very important to make sure that the NAACP represented themselves and to, she wanted to pay homage to uh, Dorothy Parker and her, her activism and giving the, the estate to them. But I was really moved by her age as well. So what I did, George, is I read something from my hometown, which is an essay she wrote in 1928, where Dorothy Parker, it's similar to E.B. White's Here is New York. It, it's really is why she loves being a New Yorker. So I read that. Susan welcomed her to Woodlawn. Um, uh, Bill Zephro, who's a Dorothy Parker Society member, performed um, I Wished on the Moon, which was a Parker song. 
as well as a song he wrote about her called Happy Birthday, Mrs. Parker, because we interred her on her birthday on August 22nd. And then we closed with another um, Bronx poet, um, uh, County Cullen. Um, we read one of his poems um, together rather than a prayer. And um, it had been raining. It had been raining during the whole ceremony. But right when we got to the part where we actually lowered her into the ground, the sun came out and it was a beautiful, beautiful summer day. And then each of us took turns um, putting a handful of dirt on top of the box in the ground. And that was it. Then she was back in New York City. She's buried right next to her mother who died when she was four years old, um, Eliza Rothschild, next to her parents and, and her grandparents. So it's it's a really great homecoming feeling for me. I had the opportunity to talk to Susan Olson, uh, who is the incredible historian. She's really a Bronx treasure. Um, and she was pointing out that, um, you know, we were joking a little bit about, you know, who are the A-listers, you know, in their death. Um, of course, Herman Melville is one of their stars. You have Celia Cruz, who has probably the biggest, uh, know, number of visitors. You also have um, a lot of the jazz greats like Miles Davis. But she said that Dorothy Parker has, is going to be a pilgrimage site. She knows it. We all know it. And um, I think that's something that's very exciting for, for people um, throughout the world, actually, that they might come to the Bronx to pay homage to Dorothy Parker. Kevin, what does it say on her gravestone? Well, right now it's a temporary marker and it just has her name in 1893 to 1967. Uh, the family is planning to have a very nice gravestone unveiling, which will be open to the public, um, hopefully at some date next year. Um, and we don't know what it's gonna say yet. Um, there's a lot of talk about which, which could be her, her final uh, her final gravestone in, in, engraved. You know, she had joked in Vanity Fair when she was alive about excuse my dust, um, which is what was on her, her marker at the Memorial Garden. And I made a little plaque that went into the ground with her that said that too. But um, right now we don't know. Um, she's just right now, just a, a brand new Bronx resident. She's near Professor Jerry Thomas who created the very first bartender's guide in the 19th century. So. Being around a cocktail guru like that, I think, is a great thing for, for Dorothy Parker to have for eternity. You know, you both talked about the Algonquin Hotel, but can you talk to us a little bit more about the importance of the Algonquin to Dorothy Parker? I think this is Kevin's forte. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So in June 1919, uh, when World War I ended, um, there was a welcome back to New York luncheon or roast for Alexander Wolcott, who was one of Dorothy Parker's close friends. And so this was a gathering, uh, gathering of writers, columnists, editors, publicists, um, Broadway folks who met almost daily for seven or eight years at the Algonquin Hotel on 44th Street. And that was right when Parker's career was taking off. Uh, she was on Vanity Fair. She was Broadway's only female critic. And what happened is pretty quickly, um, newspapers started reporting what was said at the round table that day or the day before. And so their fame spread internationally. And those groups you know, went on to collaborate on Broadway shows together, movies together, um, wrote hit books. And so they were really well known um, in the jazz age as the funniest, wittiest group of folks. And that legend has continued on and influenced you know, a number of people you know, into the 21st century as well too. One of the things that was really fun was um, 
when I was working with my editor, uh, he said, you know, why don't we, you know, get a few quips in just to ground readers. And I just, he's like, find something funny. And I couldn't find anything that was just not like, oh, that's perfect. That's perfect. But eventually with Kevin's help, it's, it's always good to be friends with the head of the Dorothy Parker Society when you're writing about Dorothy Parker. But I learned about, um, uh, a game that the Algonquin Circle would play. I don't know if they were playing it at the Algonquin, but certainly around that time uh, called, um, what is it called? Finish the set, make a sentence or, um, and, and they would draw words so they would have to make a sentence. And so she drew the word horticulture and she just quipped off the top of the back and this was recorded by people, you can, bring a horticulture, but you can't make her drink. And I just, I just sat there laughing. How modern is this person? Wait a minute, Lori didn't get it right. Oh, here, oh, see, you got the president here. So the president will get this right. <laughs> Come on, this is for the Bronx. You gotta get this right. Okay. You can lead a horticulture, but you can't make her think. Oh, think, oh. <laughs> well, this is an absolutely incredible story. Thank you both so much for sharing it. I'm glad you had the opportunity to keep it under wraps so you can release it in the way you want it to release it. Lori, Kevin, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And I hope everybody who's listening will come out and visit Dorothy Parker at Woodlawn Cemetery. She's in the Myrtle section right near the Webster Avenue gate. You can't miss it. Kevin C. Patrick is the head of the Dorothy Parker Society. He's also a professional tour guide and author. Lori Gwen Shapiro is a writer and filmmaker. She recounts the story of Dorothy Parker's cremains in her New Yorker article, The Improbable Journey of Dorothy Parker's Ashes. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Our producer is Maddie Bristow. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>